This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton Section 10 Wine When It Is Red I suppose that there will be some wigs on the green in connection with the recent manifesto signed by a string of very eminent doctors on the subject of what is called alcohol. Alcohol is, to judge by the sound of it, an Arabic word like algebra and alhambra, those two other unpleasant things. The alhambra in Spain I have never seen. I am told that it is a low and rambling building. I allude to the far more dignified erection in Leicester Square. If it is true, as I surmise, that alcohol is a word of the Arabs, it is interesting to realize that our general word for the essence of wine and beer and such things comes from a people which has made particular war upon them. I suppose that some aged Moslem chieftain sat one day at the opening of his tent and brooding with black brows and cursing in his black beard over wine as the symbol of Christianity, racked his brains for some word ugly enough to express his racial and religious antipathy, and suddenly spat out the horrible word alcohol. The fact that the doctors had to use this word for the sake of scientific clearness was really a great disadvantage to them in fairly discussing the matter for the word really involves one of those beggings of the question which make these moral matters so difficult. It is quite a mistake to suppose that, when a man desires an alcoholic drink, he necessarily desires alcohol. Let a man walk ten miles steadily on a hot summer's day along a dusty English road, and he will soon discover why beer was invented. The fact that beer has very slight stimulating quality will be quite among the smallest reasons that induce him to ask for it. In short, he will not be in the least desiring alcohol, he will be desiring beer. But of course the question cannot be settled in such a simple way. The real difficulty which confronts everybody, and which especially confronts doctors, is that the extraordinary position of man in the physical universe makes it practically impossible to treat him in either one direction or in the other in a purely physical way. Man is an exception, whatever else he is. If he is not the image of God, then he is a disease of the dust. If it is not true that a divine being fell, then we can only say that one of the animals went entirely off its head. In neither case can we really argue very much from the body of man simply considered as the body of an innocent and healthy animal. His body has got too much mixed up with his soul, as we see in the supreme instance of sex. It may well be worthwhile uttering the warning to wealthy philanthropists and idealists that this argument from the animal should not be thoughtlessly used even against the atrocious evils of excess. It is an argument that proves too little or too much. Doubtless it is unnatural to be drunk, but then in a real sense it is unnatural to be human. Doubtless the intemperate workman wastes his tissues in drinking 
but no one knows how much the sober workman wastes his tissues by working. No one knows how much the wealthy philanthropist wastes his tissues by talking, or in much rarer conditions, by thinking. All the human things are more dangerous than anything that affects the beasts. Sex, poetry, property, religion. The real case against drunkenness is not that it calls up the beast, but that it calls up the devil. It does not call up the beast, and if it did, it would not matter much. As a rule, the beast is harmless and rather amiable creature, as anybody can see by watching cattle. There is nothing bestial about intoxication, and certainly there is nothing intoxicating or even particularly lively about beasts. Man is always something worse or something better than an animal, and a mere argument from animal perfection never touches him at all. Thus in sex no animal is either chivalrous or obscene, and thus no animal ever invented anything so bad as drunkenness or so good as drink. The pronouncement of these particular doctors is very clear and uncompromising. In the modern atmosphere, indeed, it even deserves some credit for moral courage. The majority of modern people, of course, will probably agree with it in so far as it declares that alcoholic drinks are often of supreme value in emergencies of illnesses. But many people, I fear, will open their eyes at the emphatic terms in which they describe such drink as considered as a beverage. But they are not content with declaring that the drink is in moderation harmless. They distinctly declare that it is in moderation beneficial. But I fancy that in saying this the doctors had in mind a truth that runs somewhat counter to the common opinion. I fancy that it is the experience of most doctors that giving any alcohol for illness, though often necessary, is about the most morally dangerous way of giving it. Instead of giving it to a healthy person who has many other forms of life, you are giving it to a desperate person to whom it is the only form of life. The invalid can hardly be blamed if, by some accident of his erratic and overwrought condition, he comes to remember the thing as the very water of vitality and to use it as such. For in so far as drinking is really a sin, it is not because drinking is wild, but because drinking is tame. Not in so far as it is anarchy, but in so far as it is slavery. Probably the worst way to drink is to drink medicinally. Certainly the safest way to drink is to drink carelessly, that is, without caring much for anything, and especially not caring for the drink. The doctor, of course, ought to be able to do a great deal in the way of restraining those individual cases where there is plainly an evil thirst, and beyond that the only hope would seem to be in some increase or rather some concentration of ordinary public opinion on the subject. I have always held consistently my own modest theory on the subject. I believe that if by some method the local public house could be as definite and isolated a place as the local post office or the local railway station, if all types of people passed through it for all types of refreshment, you would have the same safeguard against a man behaving in a disgusting way in a tavern that you have at present against his behaving in a disgusting way in a post office, simply the presence of his ordinary sensible neighbors. In such a place, the kind of lunatic who wants to drink an unlimited number of whiskies would be treated 
with the same severity with which the post office authorities would treat an amiable lunatic who had an appetite for licking an unlimited number of stamps. It is a small matter whether in either case a technical refusal would be officially employed. It is an essential matter that in both cases the authorities could rapidly communicate with the friends and family of the mentally afflicted person. At least the postmistress would not dangle a strip of tempting sixpenny stamps before the enthusiast's eyes as he was being dragged away with his tongue out. If we make drinking open and official, we might be taking one step toward making it careless. In such things, to be careless is to be sane, for neither drunkards nor Moslems can be careless about drink. Demagogues and Mystagogues I once heard a man call this age the age of demagogues. Of this I can only say, in the admirably sensible words of the angry coachman in Pickwick, that that remark's political, or what is much the same, it ain't true. So far from being the age of demagogues, this is really and specially the age of mystagogues. So far from this being a time in which things are praised because they are popular, the truth is that this is the first time, perhaps, in the whole history of the world in which things can be praised because they are unpopular. The demagogue succeeds because he makes himself understood, even if he is not worth understanding. But the mystagogue succeeds because he gets himself misunderstood, although as a rule he is not even worth misunderstanding. Gladstone was a demagogue, Disraeli a mystagogue. But ours is specially the time when a man can advertise his wares not as a universality, but as what the tradesmen call a speciality. We all know this, for instance, about modern art. Michelangelo and Whistler were both fine artists, but one is obviously public, the other obviously private, or rather, not obvious at all. Michelangelo's frescoes are doubtless finer than the popular judgment, but they are plainly meant to strike the popular judgment. Whistler's pictures seem often meant to escape the popular judgment. They even seem meant to escape the popular admiration. They are elusive, fugitive. They fly even from praise. Doubtless many artists in Michelangelo's day declared themselves to be great artists, though they were unsuccessful. But they did not declare themselves great artists because they were unsuccessful. That is the peculiarity of our own time, which has a positive bias against the populace. Another case of the same kind of thing can be found in the latest conceptions of humor. By the wholesome tradition of mankind, a joke was a thing meant to amuse men. A joke which did not amuse them was a failure just as a fire which did not warm them was a failure. But we have seen the process of secrecy and aristocracy introduced even into jokes. If a joke falls flat, a small school of aesthetes only asks us to notice the wild grace of its falling and its perfect flatness after its fall. The old ideas that the joke was not good enough for the company has been superseded by the new aristocratic idea that the company was not worthy of the joke. They have introduced an almost insane individualism into that one form of intercourse which is specially and uproariously communal, 
They have made even levities into secrets. They have made laughter lonelier than tears. There is a third thing to which the mystagogues have recently been applying the methods of a secret society. I mean manners. Men who sought to rebuke rudeness used to represent manners as reasonable and ordinary. Now they seek to represent them as private and peculiar. Instead of saying to a man who blocks up a street or the fireplace, you ought to know better than that, the moderns say, you of course don't know better than that. I've just been reading an amusing book by Lady Grove called The Social Fetich, which is a positive riot of this new specialism and mystification. It is due to Lady Grove to say that she has some of the freer and more honorable qualities of the old Whig aristocracy, as well as their wonderful worldliness and their strange faith in the passing fashion of our politics. For instance, she speaks of Jingo imperialism with the healthy English contempt, and she perceives stray and striking truths and records them justly, as, for instance, the great democracy of the southern and Catholic countries of Europe. But in her dealings with social formula, here in England, she is, it must frankly be said, a common mystagogue. She does not, like a decent demagogue, wish to make people understand. She wishes to make them painfully conscious of not understanding. Her favorite method is to terrify people from doing things that are quite harmless by telling them that if they do, they are the kind of people who would do other things equally harmless. If you ask after somebody's mother, or whatever it is, you are the kind of person who would have a pillowcase, or would not have a pillowcase. I forget which it is. And so, I dare say, does she. If you assume the ordinary dignity of a decent citizen, and say that you don't see the harm of having a mother or a pillowcase, she would say that, of course, you wouldn't. This is what I call being a mystagogue. It is more vulgar than being a demagogue because it is much easier. The primary point I meant to emphasize is that this sort of aristocracy is essentially a new sort. All the old despots were demagogues. At least they were demagogues whenever they were really trying to please or impress the demos. If they pour out beer for their vassals, it was because both they and their vassals had a taste for beer. If, in some slightly different mood, they poured melted lead on their vassals, it was because both they and their vassals had a strong distaste for melted lead. But they did not make any mystery about either of the two substances. They did not say, you don't like melted lead? Ah, no, of course you wouldn't. You are probably the kind of person who would prefer beer. It is no good asking you even to imagine the curious undercurrent of psychological pleasure felt by a refined person under the seeming shock of melted lead. Even tyrants, when they tried to be popular, tried to give the people pleasure. They did not try to overawe the people by giving them something which they ought to regard as pleasure. It was the same with the popular presentment of aristocracy. Aristocrats tried to impress humanity by the exhibition of qualities which humanity admires, such as courage, gaiety, or even mere splendor. The aristocracy might have more possession in these things, but the democracy had quite equal delight in them. 
it was much more sensible to offer yourself for admiration because you had drunk three bottles of port at a sitting than to offer yourself for admiration as lady grove does because you think it right to say port wine while other people think it right to say port whether lady grove's preference for port wine i mean for the phrase port wine is a piece of mere nonsense i do not know but at least it is a very good example of the futility of such tests in the matter even of mere breeding port wine may happen to be the phrase used in certain good families but numberless aristocrats say port and all barmaids say port wine the whole thing is rather more trivial than collecting tram tickets and i will not pursue lady grove's further distinctions i pass over the interesting theory that i ought to say to jones even apparently if he is my dearest friend how is mr jones instead of how is your wife and i pass over an impassioned declamation about bedspreads i think which has failed to fire my blood the truth of the matter is really quite simple an aristocracy is a secret society and this is especially so when as in the modern world it is practically a plutocracy the one idea of a secret society is to change the password lady grove falls naturally into a pure perversity because she feels subconsciously that the people of england can be more effectively kept at a distance by a perpetual torrent of new tests than by the persistence of a few old ones she knows that in the educated middle class there is an idea that it is vulgar to say port wine therefore she reverses the idea she says that the man who would say port is a man who would say how is your wife she says it because she knows both these remarks to be quite obvious and reasonable the only thing to be done or said in reply i suppose would be to apply the same principle of bold mystification on our own part i do not see why i should not write a book called etiquette in fleet street and terrify everyone else out of that thoroughfare by mysterious allusions to the mistakes that they generally make i might say this is the kind of man who would wear a green tie when he went into tobacconists or you don't see anything wrong in drinking a benedictine on thursday no of course you wouldn't i might asseverate with passionate disgust and disdain the man who is capable of writing sonnets as well as triolets is capable of climbing an omnibus while holding an umbrella it seems a simple method if ever i should master it perhaps i may govern england The Eatanswill Gazette The other day someone presented me with a paper called The Eatanswill Gazette. I need hardly say that I could not have been more startled if I had seen a coach coming down the road with old Mr. Tony Weller on the box. But indeed the case is much more extraordinary than that would be. Old Mr. Weller was a good man, a specially and seriously good man, a proud father and a very patient husband, a sane moralist and a reliable ally one could not be so very much surprised if he somebody pretended to be tony weller but the eatanswill gazette is definitely depicted in pickwick as a dirty and unscrupulous rag soaked with slander and nonsense 
It was really interesting to find a modern paper proud to take its name. A case cannot be compared to anything so simple as a resurrection of one of the Pickwick characters, yet a very good parallel could easily be found. It is almost exactly as if a firm of solicitors were to open their offices tomorrow under the name of Dodson and Fogg. It was at once apparent, of course, that the thing was a joke, but what was not apparent, what only grew upon the mind with gradual wonder and terror, was the fact that it had its serious side. The paper is published in the well-known town of Sudbury, in Suffolk, and it seems that there is a standing quarrel between Sudbury and the country town of Ipswich, as to which was the town described by Dickens in his celebrated sketch of an election. Each town proclaims with passion that it was Eatonswill. If each town proclaimed with passion that it was not Eatonswill, I might be able to understand it. Eatonswill, according to Dickens, was a town alive with loathsome corruption, hypocritical in all its public utterances, and venial in all its votes. Yet two highly respectable towns compete for the honor of having been this particular cesspool, just as ten cities fought to be the birthplace of Homer. They claim to be its original as keenly as if they were claiming to be the original of Moore's Utopia or Morris's Earthly Paradise. They grow seriously heated over the matter. The men of Ipswich say warmly, It must have been our town, for Dickens says it was corrupt, and a more corrupt town than our town you couldn't have met in a month. The men of Susbury reply with rising passion, Permit us to tell you, gentlemen, that our town was quite as corrupt as your town any day of the week. Our town was a common nuisance, and we defy our enemies to question it. Perhaps you will tell us, sneer the citizens of Ipswich, that your politics were ever as thoroughly filthy as... As filthy as anything, answered the Sudbury men, undauntedly. Nothing in politics could be filthier. Dickens must have noticed how disgusting we were. And could he have failed to notice, the others reasoned indignantly, how disgusting we were? You could smell us a mile off. You Sudbury fellows may think yourselves very fine, but let me tell you that, compared to our city, Sudbury was an honest place. And so the controversy goes on. It seems to me to be a new and odd kind of controversy. Naturally, an outsider feels inclined to ask why Eatonswill should be either one or the other. As a matter of fact, I fear Eatonswill was every town in the country. It is surely clear that when Dickens described the Eatonswill election, he did not mean it as a satire on Sudbury or a satire on Ipswich. He meant it as a satire on England. The Eatonswill election is not a joke against Eatonswill. It is a joke against elections. If the satire is merely local, it practically loses its point, just as the circumlocution office would lose its point if it were not supposed to be a true sketch of all government offices just as the Lord Chancellor in Bleak House would lose his point if he were not supposed to be symbolic and representative of all Lord Chancellors. The whole moral meaning would vanish if we supposed that Oliver Twist had got by accident into an exceptionally bad workhouse, or that Mr. Dorrit was in the only debtor's prison that was not well managed. Dickens was making a game, not of places, but of methods. He poured all his powerful genius into trying to make the people ashamed of the methods, but he seems only 
to have succeeded in making people proud of the places. In any case, the controversy is conducted in a truly extraordinary way. No one seems to allow for the fact that, after all, Dickens was writing a novel, and a highly fantastic novel at that. Facts in support of Sudbury or Ipswich are quoted not only from the story itself, which is wild and wandering enough, but even from the yet wilder narratives which incidentally occur in the story, such as Sam Weller's description of how his father, on the way to Eatonswill, tipped all the voters into the canal. This may quite easily be, to begin with, an entertaining teradoodle of Sam's own invention, told like many other even more improbable stories, solely to amuse Mr. Pickwick. Yet the champions of these two towns positively asked each other to produce a canal, or to fail forever in their attempts to prove themselves the most corrupt town in England. As far as I remember, Sam's story of the canal ends with Mr. Pickwick eagerly asking whether everybody was rescued, and Sam solemnly replying that one old gentleman's hat was found but that he was not sure whether his head was in it. If the canal is to be taken as realistic, why not the hat and the head? If these critics ever find a canal, I recommend them to drag it for the body of the old gentleman. Both sides refuse to allow for the fact that the characters in the story are comic characters. For instance, Mr. Percy Fitzgerald, the eminent student of Dickens, writes to the Eatonswill Gazette to say that Sudbury, a small town, could not have been Eatonswill because one of the candidates speaks of its great manufactures. But obviously one of the candidates would have spoken of its great manufactures if it had nothing but a row of apple stalls. One of the candidates might have said that the commerce of Eatonswill eclipsed Carthage and covered every sea. It would have been quite in the style of Dickens. But when the champion of Sudbury answers him, he does not point out this plain mistake. He answers by making another mistake exactly of the same kind. He says that Eaton's will was not a busy, important place, and his odd reason is that Mrs. Pott says she was dull there. But obviously Mrs. Pott would have said she was dull anywhere. She was setting her cap at Mr. Winkle. Moreover, it was the whole point of her character in any case. Mrs. Pott was that kind of woman. If she had been in Ipswich, she would have said that she ought to be in London. If she was in London, she would have said she ought to be in Paris. The first disputant proves Eaton's will grand because a servile candidate calls it grand. The second proves it dull because a discontented woman calls it dull. The great part of the controversy seems to be conducted in the spirit of highly irrelevant realism. Sudbury cannot be Eatonswill, because there was a fancy dress shop at Eatonswill, and there is no record of a fancy dress shop at Sudbury. Sudbury must be Eatonswill, because there were heavy roads outside Eatonswill, and there are heavy roads outside Sudbury. Ipswich cannot be Eatonswill, because Mrs. Leo Hunter's country seat would not be near a big town. Ipswich must be Eatonswill, because Mrs. Leo Hunter's country seat would be near a large town. Really, Dickens ought to have been allowed to take liberties with such things as these, even if he had been mentioning the place by name. If I were writing a story about the town of Limerick, I should take the liberty of introducing a bun shop without taking a journey to Limerick to see whether there was a bun shop there. 
If I wrote a romance about Torquay, I should hold myself free to introduce a house with a green door, without having studied a list of all the colored doors in the town. But if, in order to make it particularly obvious that I had not meant the town for a photograph, either of Torquay or Limerick, I had gone out of my way to give the place a wild, fictitious name of my own, I think that in that case I should be justified in tearing my hair with rage if the people of Limerick or Torquay began to argue about bun shops and green doors. No reasonable man would expect Dickens to be so literal as all that, even about Bath or Bury St. Edmunds, which do exist. Far less need he be literal about Eaton's will, which did not exist. I must confess, however, that I incline to the Sudbury side of the argument. This does not only arise from the sympathy which all healthy people have for small places as against big ones. It arises from some really good qualities in this particular Sudbury publication. First of all, the champions of Sudbury seem to be more open to the sensible and humorous view of the book than the champions of Ipswich, at least those that appear in this discussion. Even the Sudbury champion, bent on finding realistic clothes, rebels to his eternal honor when Mr. Percy Fitzgerald tries to show that Bob Sawyer's famous statement that he was neither buff nor blue, but a sort of plaid, must have been copied from some silly man at Ipswich who said that his politics were half and half. Anybody might have made either of the two jokes, but it was the whole glory and meaning of Dickens that he confined himself to making jokes that anybody might have made a little better than anybody would have made them. End of section 10